So we will be in Revelation chapter 17. We're going to focus more on verse 17, or verse 4, because that's kind of the whole, the whole point, in a sense, of the, of the text. Everything else, the, this is one of the times where the angel is helping John out and explaining a lot of the stuff. So there is a lot of fairly self-explanatory things in, in this chapter, which is nice especially for Revelation, but the title of it is Do Not Be Like the World, right? That's, again, that comes into where 17.4 is, you know, we're going to compare what the woman who represents the empire, be it Rome, you know, Babylon equals the world, essentially, whether it's Rome, Jerusalem, and how they've fallen as well, or just the overall empire, they represent the world, that represents the world. And so we as Christians are not to be of this world, right? We are not of this world. We are passing through, essentially. Um, so when I was 12 or 13, I remember getting a bug zapper for our porch. And, and it was one of those things where you're just amazed by it, I guess. And so we set it up on the porch, and we'd watch the bugs fly into it. And you're like, zap, and pop. You, know, you get a big one, and you pop, instead of just a little zap. You know, the bigger, the bigger they are, the more apparently they explode. Apparently it, it heats up their body, and so the inside has to come out of the outside. The, the inside has to come out, right? So just boom, just explodes. So the question I have was had, and I had to look up again, is, is, is you know, why are moths and mosquitoes drawn to these flames or these lights, right? Like what? Like they have to realize that it's hot. As they getting, they're getting closer to a flame, they have to realize that it's hot. So you think you'd... Fly there, oh, it's getting warm, let me go this way where it's cooler. But they keep going because they're drawn to the light. They're, they're, that's the way they are. So why would anything or anybody be drawn to something that would kill you, though? So I looked it up and it says, scientists think that, that since the moths especially are, are nocturnal creatures primarily, right? They evolve or they're designed, most likely, I think, to travel by the glimmer of the moon, right? This is a method called transverse orientation, so the moon is kind of their guiding light. So they know where to go, and they probably know how to keep it on one side, just like mariners using the sun or the stars when they're sailing. Right? They would say, keep, we're going west, so it means we need to keep the, keep the sun in the right, the right area, depending on what day it is. But the moon has a natural cycle, right? It waxes and wanes every 28 days. So it's going around the earth, you know, roughly 28 days. It's going around the earth as, as we are going around the sun. And so the moon... Right, it goes from a new moon, which is basically dark, so the first part of the month, you can't really see the moon. And then, you know, halfway through, roughly, it gets to be the full moon, so you, it's fully in view. You see it's usually huge, and it's all lit up. And then it goes back down to the waxing, where the slivers get smaller, right? You start seeing the little crescents and everything else. So it shines based on the reflection of the sun and how much, the, how much of the moon's surface is visible, with the earth being in the way and everything else. But really, if you, if you had to read a book or anything like that, you really couldn't do it most of the time by moonlight. Right? We had, that's why we <laughs> invented headlights and flashlights and streetlights and things like that, because we, as humans, can't just make our eyes see in the dark. Right? And so it throws everything else off, because this is a... All of these other lights, right? the fires, the light bulbs, the bug zappers, all outshine the moon or the star, the sun... Because they're, and they're more abundant than the natural light source. We can put up lights all the way in this field. We could fill this field with lights if we wanted to, if we had enough money and everything. And it would outshine the moon. 
And so the same thing is happening in our world. The artificial light sources have outshined, or at least they think they are brighter than God's light. Right? We are distracted by all these things, and we, we are drawn to all these shiny baubles and objects because they're easier, they're more accessible, I can see better in, in, the, in, the, in the nighttime, we think. But if we're not careful, we're going to be zapped or burned just like the moth. All right, and so in this chapter, John is explaining the great city of Babylon and the beast, and they're working together to lure as many people into their light as possible. Right, but, but you see, their batteries are almost dead, and their fire is almost out here in this, in this whole story, in this, in this view of the world events that are happening. Right? We are, in this book, we are hurtling towards the end. And so John is going to explain this chapter of the great city of Babylon. Or excuse me, I already read that part. So he's going to explain this, and there's two different verses. So 17 and, and 18 are going to deal with the woman or Babylon. So they're, it's a little bit re, not, not repetitive, but we see that it's set up, and then they're going to fall. Right? So we see this, the world is coming to an end, essentially. And God is setting up his kingdom on earth. So, so that's important. So we're going to go ahead and read chapter 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Because this sets the whole stage for the rest of it. And so John says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Then he carried her away in the spirit, or then he carried me away to his in the spirit to a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable with the impurities of her prostitution. And on her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. And I saw the woman who was drunk with the blood of all the saints and the, with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on this earth, or the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life, from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. All right, and so we'll get through the rest of it as we go. But that sets up the stage. And so we're going to focus in again, I said, on, on chapter or verse 4. And so here's the main point of this, though, is that do not love the world because the world has no love for you. Right, do not love the world because the world has no love for you. We're going to see later, if you read to the end of the chapter, basically the world turns on the city. She, it turns on the woman, the destroyer. The kings who are working for the beast, they have a little bit of infighting. They destroy the world. So they don't care about you. The world has no love for you. So there's some negative statements on here if you look in our outline. So do not love the world's riches. Do not love the world's power. And do not love the world's ruler. So... When we get into the application, it's going to be the opposite, a positive statement about loving God and loving God's, his being, essentially. 
But the angel explains in John's vision of the harlot riding the beast. And so the angel describes that this judgment is going to happen to the woman who is seated on many waters. And so the woman is understood to represent Rome at the time when John wrote his letter. But it could also be understood that it's, it's the world also, the world empire that is going to be around at the end times. Right? Whether that's Rome coming back, right? right? The, the, the reformers thought that the Pope was the great harlot or the great whore. So that's, you know, of course, they did not like the Catholic Church. So they, they had a little more animosity towards the Pope. So they were just kind of pointing right at him to say that he is going to fulfill this. Um, of course, it's yet to be seen. Could be Jerusalem as well. The, there's some them people out there, you know, Mark and I were having a conversation about it, that it, the city could represent Jerusalem as well. Because Jerusalem largely was unfaithful to to God, who, you know, his husband, Israel is, is his bride. But it's, on any sense, the larger context is that Babylon represents the worldly kingdom that is a mirror opposite to God's kingdom. Right? That is our biggest takeaway. Of course, we can get into who's, who's who and who's what, but the biggest thing is whoever it is, they are not of God's kingdom. They are, in, they are against God's kingdom. And so this woman's sexual immorality that we it's talked about here indicates that she is not faithful and does not see a problem with her lifestyle. She this is what I'm doing. This is how I make my money. I'm rich at it. I'm, I'm doing all these things, so this is what it is. And so in the history of Israel, idolatry and general unfaithfulness to God are always presented in, spiritual, in terms of spiritual adultery. Right? And here, this unfaithfulness is profound. And so the woman has established this way of life which is the path of rebellion against God. Because if you remain faithful to your husband or your spouse, you are not going to stray. You're not going to go anywhere for any other light source, right? Just like the moths. That you're going to stay with the, with the moon because that's the true light source. So if the woman is Rome, as many think, if, it, if this represents the, the, the current Roman Empire at the time in the first century, the ten kings are its rulers from Domitian to Diocletian. So these are the Caesars who were in charge, who were persecuting the church. And again, John is, a lot of the prophecies do double work where they're talking about things that are going on for the people right now when they're hearing it in the first century, but it's also stretching to our time and beyond until it actually becomes fulfilled, right? So it's, it's sort of a double prophecy in a sense. And so I think this is a very true thing because they experienced through their timelines and through their lifetime as being a Christian. You know, if you become a Christian at, at, at 80, 30-ish roughly or 33 right around Jesus' you know, life and resurrection... Even if it's written in AD 70, that's still 40 years you've been a Christian. You've seen several Caesars come and go. If it's written in 90 or 95 AD, you've seen a few more people. You're into the 60-year range. So you've been under persecution pretty much your entire Christian life. So everything they're saying, everything John is saying makes sense because people would know to make those connections automatically. And again, but even Andrew of Caesarea writing in the late 500s or early 600s, explains or understood that this woman or empire is a future empire that will come to power with Satan's help. And it's going to be a part of the Antichrist regime. So even people who live back closer to when it was written understood that this should represent some, some other thing, right? Because like we said before, Revelation is, is detailing how bad it's going to get that we can't really even fathom. 
So the many waters that it's talked about that the woman is sitting next to are the many people that she will lead astray, right? Every time it talks about the waters, it's talking about people, the numbers of people. And so these kings also have sold their souls to take part or experience what the world has to offer. They're getting rich off the world. And again, John gives us the description of the woman in 17.4. And I'll read it again because, again, this is kind of the hinge point for, the, for this chapter. Is that the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable with the impurities of her prostitution. Right? So that is the jumping off point. And so when you see a person with a lot of flash or sparkly or nice jewelry, you probably make assumptions that they're rich. You know, everybody wants to have a really nice watch, and of course, people want to buy the big, big gold shiny watches, you know, the Rolexes, things like that, because, oh, look at me, look what I have. Now, a lot of times, the people who really do have money don't want that because they don't want to get call attention to themselves for a lot of times. But the people who are newly rich or want to pretend like they're really rich, they, a lot of times, they end up doing those things. They, they have the shiny objects that are meant to distract you from the idea that perhaps their clothes are not as new as you'd like to, they, they would like you to think, right? If you look at their shoes, they're worn, they're not polished, their pants are a little threadbare, right? Because they're putting on a show for you. They're saying, look at me, I'm so rich. I'm like, well, not really. You know, it, it's so, so this thing that they have, and so their gold may not be as pure as you think. Their diamonds are actually just glass, and the pearls are manufactured instead of being natural pearls, right? Because there's a price difference. If you guys, if you're looking for pearls for your, your spouses or significant others, there's a price difference between the naturally grown ones and the you know cultured pearl, the, the manufactured ones, right? They they still grow in an oyster, but they're farmed essentially. And we get caught up in the world's riches, right? We're we're impressed by these people, like wow, they got a lot of money, and all this money, if we have it. It can make us happy for a little while, but we know those things don't last. Right? The, the gold is tarnished. The pants wear through. The shoes get holes in them. And all of these statements, right? So John says he was astonished by what he saw. And, and the angel asks him, why do you marvel? Why are you astonished? Why are you looking at the world like this? This is bad, this is evil, this is wrong of what they're doing. So instead of loving the world's riches, though, we can be content and we should be amazed at God's wealth. Right? So here's the application, is that we can love God's wealth. You say, wait a minute. Riches and wealth, aren't they the same word? Right? They're just synonyms. Right? But again, our language has a lot of different meanings, kind of like fury and wrath. Right? There's different degrees of what they mean. So here's what Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines wealth as, an abundance of valuable material possessions or resources and abundant supply, while it defines riches as things that make a person rich. And it goes further to define rich, being rich as having abundant possessions and material wealth. So one article I got that I let this stuff up, it says... It appears that being both wealthy and being rich are similar in relation to humans, right? It sounds very similar to us, right? And we just use them as shorthand. But a close observation will show that wealthy is not only a valuable possession, but it has abundant supply. This means that when you are involved in activity that generates a lot of money, you are considered rich. But when you create a system of activity for others to generate money, then you are considered wealthy. Right? If you're a realtor, you sell houses, you can be rich. But if I have a realtor business and I employ other realtors, 
They're making money. I'm making money. We're well, considered wealthy, right? So being rich is essentially looked at as you have a lot of stuff. And being wealthy indicates you have enough to go around and make others wealthy. Right? And so the, word, the Greek word plutos can be used for riches and wealth. Again, they're, 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 they're close enough in, in relation, but there's a difference, right? The definition that is given in Greek lexicons is, is closer to our definition of wealth, meaning you have an abundant supply of stuff. And so some of these verses I'm going to read, they're translated using the word riches, but I want you to understand it as wealth. So Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches or glorious wealth in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.18 and 19 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? Right, and so we see this, right? He has this wealth, and we're not just talking about money. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme. This is not just pray to God and hopefully he'll drop off a check for a million dollars to me tomorrow. It's the fact that he has given his wealth of everything he owns, so all the resources you have in your life, he has given to you. But the biggest thing he has is his grace that he gives us. But that is the best thing he has given us to make us the wealthiest thing that we can ever buy. Is our salvation that we can't purchase on our own. We cannot just walk into the God's bank and say, all right, I got my, I earned all my money today. Here, give me, I'm going to give you this check for my salvation. And we're all square. We can't make enough money for that. God doesn't need your money if we could. But he poured out his wealth of his, of his glorious inheritance to us. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Right, they left Egypt and went into the promised land. They were getting ready to set everything up in the promised land. He was saying, I made all this possible. I have given you all these things to make this possible for the plan. And so we see this happen. So we don't need to be excited or in awe of the world and their riches, what they have, because we have so much more. We have so much more wealth through God. Right? And so this wealth is, again, the grace that we have through the salvation of him. So we're moving on from the riches, and we're going to look at, so now we need to make sure we don't love the world's power. And so the angel says, or John describes, that the woman is clothed in purple and scarlet. And so purple is the royal color. Right? The purple color back then, it actually came from, uh, it's an actual name, but basically I, when I was learning it, it was basically a, 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 a crayfish. You know, a crawdad for people from the south. Right? That produces a purple ink. When you do whatever you do to it, it makes a purple ink. And so that's where they get the color from. And so of course, you need a lot of, if you, ever, if you ever used to catch crayfish or anything, you know, they're little lobsters, but they're only about that big. So imagine how many of those you would need to squeeze to make a purple robe or a blanket or anything else, right? You would need a lot of them, right? And so the soldiers put on a purple robe on Jesus when they tortured him, right? And this is detailed in Matthew 27, Mark 15, and John 19. And so... I looked it up, so just so we're all clear. So the interesting thing is in those verses, Matthew said it was a scarlet robe, while John and Mark said it was purple. A lot of times, if you're a guy, you probably don't care too much either way. 
it's close enough to purpley that it's whatever. Now there is a difference, but if it's getting to be dawn or dusk, you know, in the light, those colors look very similar. So that may explain or most likely explains the difference in the details because Matthew saw it and he said, oh, I think it's, I think it's scarlet. You know, it's maroonish. John and Mark saw it and said, well, I think it's purple. You know, and if you look at the colors, they look very similar. But this purple, this purple robe indicates royalty, indicates being in charge, right? The empire always thinks it's in charge. England thought they were ruling America and its other lands, but as history's shown, they eventually lost control of their people, right? Spain once controlled much of South and Central America, and now the countries are all independent, right? We, we, if you remember high school or elementary school social studies, you see these world empires going back and forth, going ebb and flow. And so likewise, the world ends up losing control of those who love God and are not, were not seduced by her cheap clothing and temporary pleasures, Right, yeah, you, you have a shirt that says you're in charge, but you're really not in charge, right? And my, my adage is, if you have to tell people you're in charge, you're actually not in charge. Because the people who are in charge, you go to those people automatically to get something done or whatever it is, regardless if they're the boss or not, right? You may have to go to your boss because he is in charge, but you do it because you have to, not because you want to. And so this clothing, while eye-catching, right? Because if you see purple and scarlet or maroon, they stand out. Especially in a day where most everybody has browns and blues and you know, earth tones and you know, toned down, not as bright colors. So this stands out. So, oh, that must be somebody important coming in because they're all dressed in purple. And we have other writings from the ancient world that tell us because this, this signified a high status, many people spent large sums to purchase purple clothing. A freedman might imitate a senator by lounging about in purple clothes while provincials, or the, the lay people, the normal people, fantasized about striking it rich and buying purple cloaks. Today it would be like, oh, I want to buy... Um, you know, coach clothing or whatever you see on the you know, the runways of Paris or whatever, like, oh, I like that for whatever reason. You know, that's, I'm going to save my money to buy that, 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 that clothing instead of buying some Lee jeans, right, from Walmart. And there's nothing wrong with those. They're good jeans and they work and they last, right? But you may want to have something nice because people can say, ooh, you have those clothes. You must be doing all right for yourselves, right? But scarlet, so explaining it and what these colors mean for us, scarlet signifies wealth, and scarlet cloth was a luxury item in Babylon's empire. So an immoral woman wearing purple and scarlet in public emphasized her shamelessness. Right, if you've been to a bigger city or even some other places, if you go to the, the wrong parts of town, you, you could probably pick out the people who are prostitutes, the way they're dressed, because they're looking to get business. And so you know what they're doing and what they're looking for. But we need not be impressed with her power and influence that are used to lure unsuspecting people of all classes to ex so they can exploit them. Instead, this is the as application point, is we should love God's humility. Right? We should love God's humility, not the world's power, not the world's you know, putting themselves out there. But Because there's nothing glamorous about Jesus hanging on a cross, nearly naked, covered in blood and wounds, exhausted, from his beatings and torture with the crown of thorns on his head. That's not glamorous. That's not what the world says. Is that's, hey, that's, you want to be successful? Go get beat up and get crucified. That's the way to do it. 
Most people say, no, that is not, that makes no sense to me. Having nice clothes, having people compliment me, people thinking I'm rich, that's the way to be successful. But God humbled himself, right? The world expects, and it seems they even expected it from the first century Jews. They wanted an action hero Messiah who kicks down the door, runs into the Pontius Pilate and kills him and says, we're taking over. But that's not how it happened. He rode in on a donkey. He went in wordless, soundless to the cross, doing all, you know, just living and going and dying for your sins. Right, that is what Jesus did. It's completely opposite of what the world says that we should be to be successful. And yet his religion, who do we celebrate every Sunday? We celebrate Jesus. We talk about Jesus. Who do we not talk about? Most of the time we don't talk about Pontius Pilate unless he comes up in the story. We don't talk about the Roman Empire most of the time because we don't care because they're gone. But we're talking every, every week, at least, and hopefully every day for us believers, we are talking about God and what He's done for us. And He did it humbly. So we can learn from Him. We should be like Christ. So James 4, verses 6-10 through 10 says, But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Right, again, it seems like the exact opposite of what the, world, what the world says. You should get an Instagram page and take pictures of yourself every single minute with filters and everything else and say, here's what I'm doing today, look at me. Look how awesome I am, right? And again, it's okay to do certain things as long as you're not getting too carried away with it. Right? It's, it's the same thing as talking loudly in a thing. Like, this week we went to a whatever and we did this and we helped all these people. And you may have good intentions, but if you're boasting about it, it is not good because you just want credit from humans. So don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. Right? I'm not saying don't go help people. Please make sure we understand that. But we don't need to brag about it. Paul tells the Philippians, and he's talking about getting along in the Philippian church. There's obviously some, some kind of problems with, between people. So that's kind of the right context of this. So Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. It doesn't mean you can forget it. You just forget about yourself and forget about taking care of yourself. You run yourself to the bone, try to take care of all these other people. You need to make sure you're healthy and you're fed and whatever it is to make sure you have enough energy to do those things. But what it is is you just don't stay in your house and say, well, I'm keeping all my wealth to myself. I'm keeping all my riches. I'm going to sit on my giant pile of money and it's going to rot. Say, I know these people need help. I know whatever it is. So I'm going to make sure that I can provide wealth to other people and do what they need to do. So they can take care of themselves. And in turn, somebody will take care of me. God, at least, is going to take care of me. Because he has given me whatever it is, the resources, to take care of people. And whoever you, know, you pray about it and deem who is needing help at the time, then you help them. 
Because Paul goes on in his Philippians and says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? That is the good news. That is the gospel message. That God is not just saying, well, figure it out, guys. Everything will work out. Don't worry. He said, I'm coming to solve the problem. I have come to solve your sin problem. I have come to pay for your debts. And so he does this because he said, look, I get it. I'm God. I'm the boss. Right? We're going to look at it in a minute. I'm the ruler. I'm the sovereign king of all. But I will come out and help sweep the floors. I will sweep the floor for you. I will come out and do these things. I am humbling myself because it's not beneath me to come and be in a human form and, and, and die for you. And so that is what we need to do. Now, nobody's asking us perhaps to die on a cross, but if so that becomes a, a, a figurative term. But we should look at the ways how can we humble ourselves for God and glorify God. Because when we humble ourselves, God is now put at the forefront. Because he is the one to do all the glory. And so we see the last few chapters, we've seen how this is going on. We saw with the bowls in chapter 16, the proud people who would not repent of their works. And they were paying the price. They oppose God. They are going to be suffering for their actions because they did not worship God. They did not give over to them. They did not give themselves over to God. They gave themselves over to the devil. They wanted to keep on living their own way instead of obeying God. But again, First Peter goes on to say, "Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you." When everything is said and done, we get robes, we get crowns. We get rewarded. We are in heaven with Jesus at the wedding feast in chapter 19. We are there because God is going to exalt us at that point. And so he's, Peter is writing to people who are suffering and saying, this is crazy. This doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't feel like suffering anymore, God. I don't want to do it anymore. But he's saying, keep going on, submitting Submit to God's wise ordering of their lives. So the mighty hand of God brings to mind the Exodus where the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt by a mighty hand. Right? We know that God is in charge of all these things. And those who suffer can likewise be confident that the day of humiliation will not last forever. When we die, we go to heaven. When we die, everything, are, you know, and depending on how it all works out, the new earth, the new heaven, and the new earth are joined. Everything's all here. And so God is going to exalt His people at the proper time. But we are humans. We do not like to suffer. Anybody raise their hand who really likes to suffer? And just be miserable? Like, just the, 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 the less stuff I have, the better. The, you know, whatever it is. I just want to struggle for every possible thing I can do. No, no. None of us really like to do that, I don't think, right? Because it indicates that we're poor. It indicates that we're helpless. It indicates that we're lacking. But you see, suffering helps us see past the things we think we need and truly focus on what we can't live without. Right? The term, I probably all heard the term first world problems. You know, my phone doesn't work. Right? That's a big deal for people. Oh, my, one of my several, you know, few cars, they don't, it, it won't start. Well, you have three others. 
I don't, but you know, some people, you, know, you have three other cars in your garage, just take that one. <sighs> it's my favorite. <sighs> I can't. I can't, I can't go anywhere today so my car doesn't work. You know, but if you only have one car, it's a whole different story. Right? I need that car. I need that bike. I need whatever it is, that one thing I need. And the one thing you do need is God. Because when we realize we cannot live without God, then we are truly free to live for Him. Right? We are truly free to live for God when we realize that we can't live without Him, just like we can't live without oxygen. Like, I'm not going to stop breathing. Like, I'm going to hold my breath. Right? Just a little, you're, you're, anybody who has like a four-year-old has probably done that at some point. Or maybe you've done it as a four-year-old. Like, I'm not, I'm not getting my way. I'm going to hold my breath. It doesn't work. You, you need air. But then when you realize you just, you just keep breathing. We, when we realize we need God, we can't withhold Him. We can't block Him out. We realize that we can live a better way. So we need to love God's sovereignty. And so this woman... Hang on. I think I did the wrong thing. Anyway. Alright, so that's the, that's the power and the riches. So the last thing is, though, that we need to make sure we don't love the world's ruler. Right? We need to make sure we don't love the world's ruler. So the woman is riding on the beast or Satan, the dragon, and she is carried around by him. Sorry, I, had a, I messed up my notes. And you realize that Satan is the one pulling the strings. Satan is the one who set up and made the world possible to do these things. So Babylon is here doing what she's doing because Satan is allowing it. And he's, he's pushing it forward. So this doesn't mean we can't enjoy the things that God has created because overall God is in charge of everything. So God is allowing Satan to push the world, right? So I want to make sure that's kind of the hierarchy of things. But we have to avoid the things that Satan has perverted. Right, that's the important part. We, we, we need to make sure that we avoid the things Satan has perverted. So money is not evil. It just sits in your wallet, in your bank account. It's just there. It doesn't commit any crimes. It doesn't do anything good. It's just there. But the love of money is. If you become so enthralled with money, then you, it has now been perverted on what it's supposed to be. Intimacy between two married people is a wonderful thing. But sex outside of marriage either... Adultery or fornication is against God's ideal for the relationship. It's a marriage relationship, right? It's, a, it's an important aspect of the covenant relationship. When you pervert that, you've now twisted what God wants. But when we are sinning, we want to do things our way, right? We, just, we come up with any kind of excuse to do what we want to do. We want to rebel against God because, hey, you know, what does He know? He's not here. He's not living His life. He's not living my life. He's, he's in heaven on His throne doing whatever, and I'm down here struggling and suffering, and I don't know, I, I need to do what I need to do, right? But the angel tells John that the beast will be destroyed soon because we can easily look and say, well, why do they get all the cool stuff? Why do they get the great stuff? Why am I stuck suffering and they don't? But again, verse, chapter 7, verse 8, or 17, verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. And so the beast, right, the devil, is a negative counterpart to who God is. Because God is the one who is and was and is to come. And we see this all the way through Revelation. This, this language that is, is the, 
that the writer is using recalls a funeral, a funeral chant. I was not, I came into being and I will not be anymore. And that's no concern to me, that's life. Or maybe I was not, I am, I am not, and I do not care. And so we see this funeral formula because really who's dying? You. If you are of the world, you are going to die. Because you are going to go with the destruction just like the beast is. And even though everything we talked about a few chapters ago where right, the Antichrist is the opposite of Jesus, the false prophet is the opposite of, of, of the Holy Spirit. And so we see right, they're, they're mirror opposites of each other essentially. But the beast drags down everyone who loves him. He drags them down with him and he causes their death. So we should not be in love with Satan. It's, not, it's like loving, loving any other sin. It will kill you. When we love Satan, he is going to kill you. John Owen, the Puritan, says, Be killing sin before it be killing you. So get rid of it. Cut it off. We don't need it. And so John talks about the seven heads who are both mountains and kings. And we see this dual imagery fitting into Revelation. The seven spirits are pictured as torches before God's thrones and also the eyes of the Lamb. And so the dual imagery of mountains and kings underscores the beast embodying the power of both the city of Rome and its emperors. Right? He is making all these things happen. He is the one in control of these things. And so we see this imperial rule. So the Greco-Roman writers excuse me, personified tyranny as a woman sitting on a mountain. So this is, you know, if you look across classical history, literature, they think that, oh, they describe it as a woman sitting on a mountain. Just like if you read Proverbs, you have two different women. You have the Lady Wisdom and the Lady um, uh, Folly, basically. So this... Woman is a tyrannical whore who sits on a seven, the seven mountains. And so we see this. Jewish writers picture God's throne amid seven mountains, and yet the arrogant whore sits on seven mountains as if attempting to take God's place, right? So again, you have this struggle that if you set it up and look just like enough like God, you can be tricked into believing it's just like God. You have to be wise enough to make sure we know we are following the true light. Again, the woman wants to rule the earth, and she does for a time, but she is a puppet for the one pulling the strings, and God is about to cut those strings, and both the puppet master and the puppet will fall down and be destroyed. The angel tells them they will make war with the lamb, but they are going to lose. So instead of loving the ruler of the world, we can love God's sovereignty. And we need to love God's sovereignty, his rulership. And so the angel reminds John that Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. So that's like saying he's the supreme allied commander. He is the guy you go to. You have a lot of generals or kings. Everybody knows who the one guy is to go to, the head king, the head general. The one who everybody listens to. And that is Jesus. He is God and God is in control. He is sovereign and he reigns and rules. So to throw the big word at you, God's rule is efficacious. So what does that mean? It means when he makes a plan... It happens. When he makes a plan, it's going to be done. It's not, gee, I hope I can make it. You know, we're moving. We have plans. I have plans on how it's all going to go down. But I'm not in control of all of it. So we have plans based on certain dates that we know. We'll move. 
but it may not happen exactly. God says, if you're moving on the 21st, you're moving on the 21st, dang it. That's it. That will happen. So these things will come to pass. So what does that mean for you, though, then? It means are we just robots and we're just doing it? No. It means if you're saved, then that was part of the plan. Your name is in the book before the world was made. So He makes your salvation not only possible, listen, not only possible, but it's actual. It happens. It's already happened on one sense. The other part is you getting there, you being born and living your life and getting to that day where God said, today's the day that Jerry is going to get saved. He's heard, he's heard the gospel 100,000 times, but today's the day. That's it. That's it. The done. Isaiah 14, verses 24 through 27 says, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people. His burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world that this is, that is the hand stretched out over all nations. Verse 27, For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? Who can stop him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? It's already set in motion. So not only is God's plan going to happen, but it's universal. It's not just for God's little corner of the world. It's for the whole world. Because everything is God's little corner of the world. People who don't believe in Him are still subject to His rules. Right? The rules of physics still apply whether you believe in God or not. We're still stuck here with gravity whether you want to realize it or not. The laws of nature apply, weather applies, you're going to get wet when it rains, whether you believe it or not. And so because He is Lord, His authority is also absolute. It is the thing, it is the end. And so that means, one, that we should not waver in our obedience to Him. Because we know His plans are going to come true, we know everything is working out for our good. And His Lordship transcends, it exceeds or is over all our other loyalties. Again, you can, love the things in the, you can love things in the world in a sense where I like to have a car and I like trees and I like all these other things, but I love God more than those things. And His authority over us exists in all areas of human life, right? So not just in the areas we arbitrarily call religious or sacred. When you say, Jesus, come into my heart, you don't just say it, but you just can only live in the living room. Like you're just a guest and here's the pull-out couch and that's all the further you can go. I'll bring her your food from the kitchen. I'll let you, you know, go to the bathroom. That's it. That's all you get to do. You don't have to, you, you're not allowed in the attic. There's too much stuff up there. I don't want you poking around and getting hurt. Right? You give him full access. He is backstage doing whatever he wants to go, doing whatever he wants to do. Because his authority, again, is absolute. And he will take nothing less. So it may seem, based on how we live our lives and what we see, that the world has everything to offer us. Right? And we're drawn to this bright light. We're drawn to these things thinking that the, the world is there to guide us and the world is there to love us and oh, of course it's not going to hurt us. But in reality, if we live that way, it's going to kill us. Right? Like the moth, we were created to steer by one light source. The moth was created to, look, to go by the moon for mankind 
We are meant to steer and be steered by the light of God. And so that, His light, will not lead us into death, but He will guide us to safety and to our destination with Him. And so we can resist the world's charms because we know what to look for. We realize that we don't need to be um, amazed at what the world has to offer. But instead, we need to be concerned with being wealthy instead of just being rich. And with intentional effort, we can be humble and think of others. And lastly, we can obey God's lordship over our lives. When we do these things, we make an effort with these things. And we're not going to do this all the time. Oh, we know that. We're all sinners. We're still sinners. We still sin. But when we do this more, we're going to do that less. We're going to be in the world less, essentially. And this will keep us moving safely toward our eternal home. Right? So as we're singing the last couple of songs, right, think about this. Do you, do you love the world's things? Or do you love God and, his, and what He's done for you? So let's go ahead and stand.